All right, you guys can go ahead and turn to Romans 1. That's where we're going to get started at this morning. It'll be our last lesson in um, paterology. The study of God the Father. Talking about God by His attributes. And when you talk about God's attributes, you're not talking about things that just apply to God the Father. They also apply to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we're talking about the last three attributes this morning. And uh, does anybody remember the last three from last week? Omnipotent. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wait, I've got this one. All-powerful. Uh-huh. Omniscient. Let's see. Yeah, omnipotent, omniscient. Omniscient, okay. The last one's easy. I know, right? Omnipresent. Omnipresent. Yep. Omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Oh, I don't have the candy up here. It's back there. Feel free to... Why would I even guess that? Grab yourself a reward. Just one. Just one. There you go. He found the Reese's. So, we're starting off this week with the, uh, the attribute, God is triune. Uh, now, what we mean by that is that God exists in a state of three oneness. That is, he is three distinct persons while also being one in essence. And we use the word triune instead of the word trinity. Uh, and that is because the term tri triunity uh, better expresses the three oneness of God better than the term trinity. Right, and triunity. Try like a tricycle and then just the word unity. And it better expresses the three oneness of God in the triunity. And I've got a couple of handouts this morning. If I can remember where I set them down at. No, I'm pretty sure I brought them in here. I, I thought I put them over here, but I did not. Well, what in the world? No. Anyway, um, the handouts, and there's two of them this morning. Are uh, okay. Thank you. You <coughs> might hand in that for me. Just the there's the bottom one for now. Yeah, let me see the top stack. Yeah. So, this is what the handout looks like. I'll show it on the computer for you guys. Good. Good. And we'll go over this handout. Uh, it says the triunity of God. Scoot this up a little bit. Okay. The triunity of God, four incorrect but common views, and the one correct view. So we're going to go over this real quick. You see, the first one there is uh, 
it's three circles connected loosely by a line. And it says God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Uh, this You don't need to know these terms. Uh, I might throw them into the uh, Family Feud game next week. But uh, this is called tritheism. And you don't need to know it except for it is basically... I've got some little math equations there for you uh, people who enjoy math. Uh, this one is basically 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3. And uh, it almost leans toward the idea of having three separate gods in Christianity rather than one god. Uh, and we know uh, the Bible says that we serve one god. right? So this is too much into the threeness of the tri of the trinity of triunity the second one we see there is called modalism and it's just one circle and it says god who reveals himself as father son and spirit in three different ways but it's actually just one being this is too much of the oneness this is one equals one equals one and it's not accurate because we know that there are, as we said, three distinct persons that are one in essence. That is what the triunity is. They are three distinct persons. The third one uh, doesn't really have a name, but it's a common view people think of the Trinity. Um, and it is one circle split up into three ways. And it's one third plus one third plus one third equals one. Right? This isn't accurate either because it's too much of the oneness. Right? There's, they are three distinct persons, not just three distinct personalities. These are three distinct separate people. But they are one in essence. Uh, the fourth is called Unitarianism. And it is God, as in God the Father, and then Jesus off to the side who is divine but not fully God. Right? The and that is one equals one. Right? And the correct view is that last one you see with the three circles that intersect each other. Right? This is the triunity. Uh, unity in essence, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they all come together and they are all God. Right? And this is one times one times one equals one. Right? And that is the correct view of the triunity. Uh, the triunity is something that we will never fully comprehend in our mortal understanding, right? Uh, it's a bit like how you couldn't think up a new color, right? You can't think of a new color. Any color you would try to think of is one that already exists in some form or another. Uh, but in heaven, I have no doubt that there are several new colors, that our minds just can't comprehend in our mortal form. Right? There are probably musical notes and scales of music that exist in heaven that don't exist on earth. Yeah, you musicians let that sink in for a minute because that's huge. Uh, the Bible talks about Satan, how he was Lucifer in the beginning. God created him for the sole purpose of singing praise to God and it says that basically that his voice functioned almost like a uh, pipe organ. That's how he was created. And he was capable, I'm sure, of singing notes that just don't even exist uh, in, here on earth. And so I have another handout for us here. I wanted to go over four imperfect but helpful illustrations of the concept of the triunity. Thank you.
And this is the handout here. And they're pretty common ones. Before we get into this one, we can talk about the egg. And a lot of people, especially around Easter time, like to use the egg since it's already Easter time and to use that as an illustration of God in the form of the Trinity with the shell, the yolk, uh, uh, the shell, the white part, and the yolk being the three parts of the Trinity. Right? And that's pretty good, uh, but it's too easily separated. You know, and even mentally, because what do you do when you go to make eggs? You crack the shell and throw it away. Right? And then you have just the food part and even some people don't like the egg yolks my daughter this morning had a fried egg that they took the yolk out of and threw it away right so that's too easily separated it's three separate things that a lot of times aren't even connected right so the eggshell it's it's a good illustration for like beginning to understand the trinity but it is too distinct it's not it's too distinct too separate so we're going to look at four helpful but imperfect concepts of the triunity. The first one is the ice cube. And maybe you've heard this one before. The ice cube represents the, the trinity of God, the triunity of God, because uh, you have water in its three forms. You have the solid of the ice, the liquid of the water, and the gas of the vapor as it evaporates. Right, water vapor. And so it's a, it's a workable illustration, as it says here, but could be made to infer that God is only one person that expresses himself in three ways. And again, like we said with the other one, that's just not accurate. Right? That's not the biblical concept of God. Uh, the second one you see there is a shamrock. Right? And that's pretty good. It's a pretty good illustration, as it says, uh, from creation itself, which is always a plus. Uh, because it's almost as if God places these things here to express his three oneness. Uh, with the connective stem representing God's essential oneness and the three identical leaves, his threeness of persona. So that one's pretty good. Um, the paper towel for the third one. You guys have maybe heard of this one. You take uh, the paper towel and it's got the two perforations on it. So you've got three separate paper towels but it's all one piece. And yours might be a little faded. Uh, when I tried to copy this, the white didn't copy really well, but that is supposed to be paper towels. Uh, the, but the weakness here is that the perforations suggest a tearing apart. Uh, but in this illustration, it's used to represent distinctiveness and the connectivity of the three sheets, right? And there's also, to me, there's too much similarity. They're the exact same paper towel done three times over. Right, And the concept of the Trinity is that the three parts of the Trinity are three distinct persons. Right, They, they uh, express themselves in different ways. Right? Even though they're made up of the same characteristics, they are God and they are fully and wholly uh, meshed together in perfection. They do express themselves in different ways. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is a completely different expression of God, uh, person distinctly from God the Father. They have different uh, almost personality traits and so forth that they express, express themselves with. Uh, but we see the, the fourth one here is uh, one of the better ones. Because God is the ruler of the universe, his Father, uh, and the Father and the Son are said to be seated upon thrones. Uh, 
For example, Revelation 4 and 5, talking about uh, the great white throne judgment and then also the judgment seat of Christ. Um, and the Spirit... Uh, is at least described as superintending on God's behalf. This illustration is even fuller. So you've got three chairs that are connected together, right? To form one like piece of furniture, right? There's three separate chairs, obviously, but they come together to make one piece of furniture. And this is pretty close. Uh, again, none of these are perfect and none of them are meant to represent God uh, in any other way except for the three oneness of his nature. And so uh, hopefully we kind of, that uh, helps us understand the three oneness of God, the triunity of God a little better. I feel like it's important to understand these things about the Lord because it can be confusing. Uh, when we think about God, we sometimes wonder, do we worship three different gods? Is it one God who expresses himself in three different ways? And in this way, we understand it a little better. Um, but uh, we see also, it says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, it says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. So in other words, what it's saying to us is there are some things that we know about God because nature itself teaches us about God in some specific ways. And Paul lists a couple of them for us here. He says, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So these are two things about God that are obvious to us from studying nature. Right? The first one being his eternal power. And the concept behind this is, you know, a lot of people have a hard time believing in God because of the eternality of God. That God just always existed. How could God have just always existed? That's absolutely ridiculous. Well, something had to have existed forever. If you don't believe in God, atheists believe in what's known as the Big Bang Theory. And we've all heard of that before. But if I'm understanding the Big Bang Theory correctly, and I've been taught it in public school, and I've studied it a bit myself personally. So if I'm understanding this correctly, which I'm pretty sure I am, uh, there was the, some matter in space. right? And uh, just through the course of time, uh, that matter began to get hotter and denser until it just expanded and spun out and uh, became, through very complicated processes, uh, the universe that we know to be true today. Right? That is what scientists, or most scientists, believe uh, to have been what happened in the origins of the universe. Right? It's the Big Bang Theory. My question becomes this, that matter that existed in the very beginning, that got hotter and denser over the course of a very long period of time, where did it come from? Where did that matter come from? There are some theories. Some scientists believe that there was a, a sort of membrane that existed that resulted in that matter. Where did that membrane come from? And then there are some scientists who even believe that that existed along a, a, a string of data. You know, you've got string theory, you know, in physics and so forth. Well, where did that come from? Something had to have been around forever. Right? That's a given. That's not even up for debate. Something had to be around forever. You either believe in the eternal master or you believe in eternal matter. Right? So the eternality of God, that's a given. 
If you want to argue about things about God that are hard to believe, you can't talk about eternity because something had to be around forever. That's a given. Uh, so nature itself teaches us just the natural laws of, of how the world works, the natural laws of physics, you might say, teach us that eternity is a given. Something was around forever. Could have been God. I believe it was. So these two things, his eternal power and Godhead. Now what does Godhead mean here? Well, I believe he's talking about the, the triunity or the trinity. The fact that there are three in one. It's say, well, how does nature itself teach us about the triunity of God? Well, nature is expressed in threes and uh, three and one everywhere you look. You might not realize it, but it does. I've got several examples here for, for you this morning. Reality. Right? What are the three parts to reality? Time, space, and matter. That's the three parts of reality. How does time express itself in three parts? Past, present, future. Right? You might say, okay, well, that's, that's a pretty big coincidence. What about space? Space is measured in three dimensions. Right? You've got length, you've got width, you've got height. We draw two-dimensional drawings, but we live in a three-dimensional world. Space is measured in three dimensions. What about matter? Solid, liquid, gas. There's a fourth matter, but it's in between two of them, really. So, I mean, at its basics, matter exists in three forms. What about the primary colors? Right? Red, yellow, and blue. What about a musical chord? <clears throat> a musical chord is made up of three notes. You play all three notes together and it harmonizes to make one chord. Beautifully blended together, those notes make a beautiful chord. Right, three separate notes, one chord. Distinct. I might say the musical chord is the best illustration of the triunity of God we have. Because it's three distinct sounds, completely separate in characteristics and in personality, but when they all come together, they form one beautiful, perfect chord. The triunity. And then, of course, we have the three parts to man. The Bible teaches us that man is made up of body, soul, and spirit. And we'll dive into that a little more when we get to um, the study, the doctrine of man. But all around us, we see that God set up things that are three and one all over the place. In every aspect of reality, there's three and one everywhere. So that's what he's talking about here in Romans 1.20 when he talks about the Godhead, that God reveals his nature and his self. He teaches us things about himself in the very existence of nature. That the natural world teaches us even about God. And uh, finally, if you want proof about the Trinity, 1 John 5, 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, 
and the Holy Ghost. You'll notice the word word there is capitalized. If you want to know why Jesus is being referred to as the word, you can go to John chapter 1, the gospel of John chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Right? Then it goes on to say, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Well, you go down a little further, I believe it's verse 12 of John chapter 1, and it says, the Word, capital W, Word, was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's talking about Jesus Christ is the capital W Word there in John 1. So in 1 John, written by the same person, he refers to the Lord Jesus as the Word, making reference to his gospel. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. That's what it says right there, 1 John 5, 7. So it's important to understand we're talking about God. It's important to understand every aspect of God. Right? Uh, but we're going to talk about <coughs> now the second uh, characteristic of God this morning is that God is just. Right, that God is just. And when we say that God is just, we mean that He is fair in all of His dealings and correct in all of His judgments. He is morally and ethically balanced to the point of perfection. Everything God says and does and judges is absolutely perfectly balanced. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Romans 2.2 says, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. The judgment of God is according to truth. There are things that people believe to be truths, and those are opinions. But there are truths that are absolute concrete fact that aren't bothered or inflicted by people's opinions. And I had to teach this to my four-year-old. Just because you said, I believe this is the way it, should, it is, doesn't mean that's the way it is. Just because you said, well, I think this is the color yellow, doesn't mean that that's the color yellow. Right? There is a color. It's called yellow. You can call it anything you want to. That's the color yellow. It doesn't matter what your opinion is about it, right? There is a universal truth out there, right? And that is what the judgment of God is according to. It's not his truth. It's not our truth. It's not a version of truth or a matter of opinion. God's judgment is according to solid, concrete fact. He is infallible. He's all-knowing. We talked about last week. He must be just. And throughout Scripture, we see a few examples of God's just nature. Genesis chapter 6, it says that God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is the story of the flood. That there was a time uh, in mankind where we as human beings were so evil that, that nobody on planet Earth apart from one man and his family had a, had a decent thought. Every thought every human being ever had was something evil. How to hurt somebody. How to take something from somebody they don't want to give you. How, how to, to cause pain 
and sorrow in the most horrific ways. That was the only thoughts human beings had anymore. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. So here he is and he's looking at all of creation. He's looking at all of mankind and he decides he's going to destroy the whole planet and there be nothingness. That's it. The end of mankind as we know it. But, verse 8 continues. And it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is a just God. Let me tell you how just this God is. The entire planet is corrupt and evil and horrible and terrible and deserving of death and honestly needing death. Mercy killing there, hurting everybody, only, ever, always. And there's one man on a planet that's multiplied, I'm sure, into innumerable numbers, maybe even into the billions. And of all those people, God saw that one man and spared that one man who was innocent and punished only those that were guilty. How many of you guys remember in school when you would have a class of maybe 20 kids, right? And then five or six of those kids would act up. And then what would the teacher do? Yeah, punish the whole class, right? Everybody stops talking, right? Everybody puts your, your pencils away, whatever it is. Everybody puts the paper away because five or six kids made paper airplanes and start throwing them across the room, right? Now everybody's punished because of those five or six kids. Why did they do that? Because they don't know which five or six kids it was. It's a large class and they can't, you know, take away one thing from one kid and not the other because they'll get phone calls and letters from parents till their classroom's full. But God, all-knowing and all-powerful, He is just in His nature and He's perfectly just. He is capable of separating the one innocent man from the billions of guilty and only punishing the guilty and sparing the one that found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That is a very just God. Joshua 7. Joshua is speaking to the people. He says, up, or God is speaking to Joshua and he says, up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel, thou canst not stand before thine enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. So we also see a God who is not guilty of favoritism. Right? He has declared a law. And if Israel breaks that law, who is also his, his beloved people, the children of Abraham, the people that carry God's name out into the world, even they, when they break God's law, are also punished by God. Because what happened was, you've heard the story of the Battle of Jericho, right? Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. What happened? The walls came tumbling down, right? When the walls came tumbling down, they had great victory. Everybody was destroyed. They won. They defeated the armies of Jericho without raising a single sword. 
So what did they do? They went into Jericho. Well, God told them, don't take anything. Because this first city, everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to the house of God and the priests. This is a sacrifice unto the Lord. Don't take anything for yourself. Well, what happened was that God uh, was that one man named Achan took some gold, some really nice clothes, and some other things for himself and hid it in his tent, didn't tell anybody. Him, as a member of God's people, as a citizen of Israel, broke the covenant with God. He broke God's law, therefore Israel was guilty of breaking God's law. So when they went into battle, they went without the Lord. Because God is just. And he'll punish his people as much as he punishes anybody else. You see, only a corrupt judge shows favoritism. A corrupt judge can be bought off. A corrupt judge can be persuaded with favors. But a truly just judge is fair and balanced. That's why a lot of times in our American justice system, what you see is the woman with the blindfold on holding the scale. That's a symbol. Justice is blind, right? And also, uh, justice is balance. Right? And that's what God is. He's balanced. He's fair. He treats everybody equally. He is a just God. Uh, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 12, uh, he says, And when you come into a house, salute it. This is Jesus telling uh, his disciples about going out into the world with the gospel. And he says, And when you come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So let me explain to you what we just read. Right? Here in Matthew 10, he's telling them that when you go out and you try to give the gospel to somebody, if they're receptive to you, they're kind, they invite you into their house, they invite you to come and join them, and you can talk to them peacefully, then bless the house. Pray and say, Lord, bless these people who are so kind to me. And if they aren't kind to you, then don't ask for the blessing. And then he goes on to say that if they reject the gospel, if you come up and try to talk to them about Jesus and they say, no, 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 I don't want to talk about that. Get out of here. Then when you leave, you shake the dust off. And that very dust will rise as a, give testimony against those people in the day of judgment. And it says here something interesting, right? It says, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And why would that be? Because we know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was horrible, right? Fire and brimstone coming down, destroying the whole city. We read about the horrible things those people did. There's a reason that it's called sodomy today. It's because of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we know how horrible it was in Sodom and Gomorrah. How could it be more tolerable for them than for somebody who rejected the gospel? Because when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, they did so in full ignorance. Right? They had no knowledge of God. 
No missionary came knocking on their doors. Nobody came telling them about Jesus. They were foreigners, ignorant of God, ignorant of His Word. Evidently, the Lord knew they would never be receptive to His Gospel. But they, they died in their ignorance. When somebody rejects the Gospel, what they've done is they've had an opportunity to receive the greatest bit of news the universe has ever offered. Hope beyond hope, wonder of wonders. And they said, no thank you. I have the opportunity for this knowledge that could save me throughout eternity, but I'm choosing to reject it. Right? So they had the chance to receive that knowledge and rejected it. So that is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah who died in their ignorance. That is why it would be more tolerable for them in the Day of Judgment than it would be for somebody who openly rejected the Lord. Uh, we also see Revelation 19. It says in verse 1, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did, that's Babylon, by the way, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. So we see in the end of days that God is avenging all the things that took place beforehand, that God is setting things right. He's balancing the scales. He, as king of all the earth, is a perfect and just God and is making up for all the atrocities taken place before his time as king of all the earth. So we're studying all of this, and you might ask yourself, why does it matter? Why does it matter to me personally? Well, I believe that we ought to study about God, and it shouldn't always be about us, right? It should be about the Lord, studying God for God's sake, because we shouldn't be self-centered. But it does also apply to us. In, a, in the world we live in, we're constantly reminded that life isn't fair, Right? That's what we're always told, even as a kid. You know, something happens and you, you walk in, you know, the day after Halloween and Dad's eating half your candy. And you're like, Dad, I, that was my candy. I was so looking forward to that. Why did you do that? And he says, well, life's tough, right? Or, uh, you know, you turn in a paper, you take a test, and you get a C minus on it. You look at your friend's paper, or you look at their test, they answered the same way you did, and they got a better grade than you. Right, similar paper, better grade than you. You go to teacher and say, teacher, come on, what is this about? And they say, well, life's not fair, is it? That's what grown-ups say to you all the time growing up as a kid. Life's not fair, it happens. It happened to me, I know it happened to Josh. But you're an English teacher, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Life's not fair. And they're right. Life isn't fair. Nobody is fair in this world. You go out and you work a job, people are only ever going to look for what benefits them. So you want to do good in your work, you got to do something that benefits the boss, makes their life easier, makes things better for them. Right? They're going to do whatever it takes to get ahead. People out there in the world are going to beg, borrow, and steal whatever it takes because life isn't fair. There are so many times that someone in a position of power abuses that power for themselves uh, and or against the people they decide they didn't like. 
right? That's why we have things like the Me Too movement, stuff like that, is because people in power and authority abuse that power and authority to do whatever they want to. Politicians, too. Should do whatever they want to. You got a lot of money, you do whatever you want to. Jeffrey Epstein had way too many friends. Fact of life. Life isn't fair. Our justice system isn't perfect. It's got flaws. It's got issues. It is the worst justice system there is, apart from all the other ones that we've tried. <laughs> right? So, America may not be perfect, but it's closer to perfect than everybody else. The only perfect justice system is the Lord. In a world of such injustice, isn't it nice to know that we serve a Lord that's fair? We serve a Lord that's just both now and in the judgment seat. That you will reign with Christ as part of a kingdom that is perfect and balanced and fair and just. And we see lastly this morning is that God is love. All right, now this is an important one to focus in on because it's one that gets misunderstood a lot. Okay? To say that God is loving is to fall short of the whole truth. God is not just loving toward us all. He is love itself. He is the source of all love in the universe. The world functions, the world without Christ, I mean, functions with a polluted version of love that they think they understand. But you can't understand real love without knowing the Lord God himself. If you want to know about true love, you have got to go to the source. 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4 and verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a fun word, propitiation. You got some spare time, look it up. I tried reading that like four times in my head and it just didn't happen. Yeah, it's pronounced propitiation. And it's a, it's a pretty good word study. Verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Lo God is love. Galatians 5.22 talks about... Does anybody know what Galatians 5.22 is? You former Awana's workers... Galatians 5 sounds really good. It yeah, it should. Is it the, the verse, the, the like, the Awana's verse? 
It is not. Like the theme version? No, I'm telling Miss Stacy. Oh, no, don't tell Miss Stacy. I've taught on this several times, too. I should know this. You looked it up, didn't is you? Gideon? Cheater? <laughs> no, Gideon's in the Book of Judges. Uh, you had to shoot one out there, right? Galatians 5.22. Birth of Jesus. No. The birth of Jesus in Galatians. <laughs> Hey, it was a good try, Dad. Please, God, tell me you were joking. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, kind of. I don't know. It's a matter of opinion, I guess. But Galatians 5.22 is the fruits of the Spirit. Right? Galatians 5.22 says, uh, but the fruit of the Spirit, and the first one it lists, is love. Right? That is what we would, the fruits of the Spirit are the things that we receive through the Holy Spirit, through God. That we receive love from God. Like I said, people without Jesus, people who aren't Christians, they are capable of loving people, right? They're capable of loving their spouses and their kids, uh, maybe even their friends. But those people have a false form of love. They think they understand what love is, but they don't really have love. They don't have real love. They have a fake love. You can only have real love, true love, sincere love, by having Jesus. When a Christian couple gets saved, a couple that's connected to God, they have a good relationship with the Lord, they have a good relationship... Uh, with each other, right? It's when a, a couple just falls off of their relationship with God that they are capable of falling off of their relationship with each other. Amen. Relationships are like, imagine the triangle, right? The bottom one corner is you, the bottom other corner is your spouse, at the top is God. Amen. The closer you move to God, the closer you move to each other. That is how Christian relationships work. What does it say? A threefold cord is not easily broken. You, your spouse, and the Lord. A threefold cord that's not easily broken. We can only truly love even our kids if we love the Lord the way we should. You see parents doing all kinds of horrible things to their kids on the news all the time. How are they capable of doing that? They have a false form of love. They don't really know the Lord like they ought to. When, uh, within Scripture, we see the greatest example of love in all of human history. Luke chapter 23, I'm just going to read for sake of time. Verse 33 says, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And they parted raiment and cast lots. They are nailing railroad spikes into his, into his hands. They are nailing his feet to the cross. And as they are doing this, through flesh, through muscle, through sinew, through bone and nerve, from one side to the other, as he's experiencing this, He's praying for these men, nailing these things through him, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There is no greater expression of love in all the world than the cross. 
He did that for us. He did that because of us, but he also did that for us. He chose to hurt and bleed and suffer like nobody ever has because that's how much he loves you. John 15, 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That God died on the cross was the greatest expression of love in all of human history. It wasn't a human sacrifice. It was a divine sacrifice. It was a man choosing to become an ant so that those ants could kill him and torture him to save the other ants. That's not even a good comparison. He didn't have to be born. He didn't have to come here at all. He chose to. That is what Christmas is all about. Because God is love. And you cannot talk about God the Father. You cannot talk about God in any form without talking about the source of love in all the world. Well, that is our lesson for uh, this Sunday morning. Next week is our Christmas service. And I didn't plan this, but I just standing here, I realized it. Next week is the start of Christology. Christmas service just so happens to be the start of Christology. So we will be back.